grace is a hug to be experienced. God's grace is a hug to be experienced. And that's what Easter is all about. That's what happened on Good Friday. Grace is the embrace of God. It's God hugging sinners, people like us, who don't deserve it. Because of what happened that first Easter weekend, Jesus comes to us to hug us with his grace. And it doesn't matter if you are a goody two-shoes type or if you're a raging alcoholic. It doesn't matter if you've never missed a night of Awana and you earned all the awards and all the trophies or if you cheat on your taxes. Jesus will hug you and welcome you with open arms into his family. Grace is the embrace of God. So many times, theologians try to dissect it. They sit in their ivory towers and they try to analyze and define and dissect grace. But as Steve Brown once said, grace isn't a doctrine to be expounded, but a hug to be experienced. I love this, what he says next. Propositions don't hug you after you have suffered enough, been embarrassed enough, been wrong enough, and sinned enough. God will hug you and invite you to a party he throws for people who are really free and don't care what others think and have been deeply loved when they didn't deserve it. I say to God, if you can't fix me, will you hug me? And he does. 24-7. That's what Easter, we celebrated last weekend, is all about. And we're celebrating today, too. And it couldn't be clearer than in our text today. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We finally made it to chapter 6, if you can believe it. We started 2 Corinthians over a year ago, and we just now got to chapter 6. I thought about this morning, I thought, oh my goodness, we're still here. What we'll see today is that God really does hug and invite us to a party. All those people who have suffered enough and been embarrassed enough, been wrong enough and sinned enough, that's Easter and that's good news. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, look at verse 1 and hear the word of the Lord. Let's sit under its authority. Working together with him, Then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul is an ambassador for Christ. We saw that a few weeks ago in chapter 5, verse 20. Paul works with God to proclaim God's grace. And I think it's easy to forget that we work with and for God. So many times we think ministry and church is about us as if it were all riding on us. And so we pray things like, We welcome you here, Lord. Come and be with us. And in one sense, there's nothing wrong with praying that if by that we mean that we are acknowledging our weakness and acknowledging our utter dependence on God. That's okay. But listen, 
God is already here and he is eager and he is willing to extend his grace to us. He is eager to meet with us whether we feel it or not. We don't welcome him. He welcomes us. That's why there's all these verses in the Bible that say, come unto me, come to the waters and drink, come, come, because God is the one welcoming us. We're not the ones saying, you should come down here because it's really good. You might benefit if you show up, Jesus. No, Jesus is like, I'm already there. You guys are the ones who need to benefit. Why don't you come and drink? We're the ones who are late to the party. He's been here all along waiting for us to show up. So we don't have to beg or twist God's arm to get him to show up on Sunday morning. He's here. He is eager and he is ready to meet us and to work with us and to work through us for his glory. He welcomes us to work together with him. Think about that. He invites us to the work that he has been doing since Genesis chapter 3. He's been at this for a while, and he invites us to work with him. And so Paul and company work with God to proclaim God's grace. And the grace of God is just another word for the gospel, really. For all that Jesus has done for us through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And that's what Paul's been doing all along in 2 Corinthians. He wants the Corinthian church, this church that he planted, he wants them to keep hearing and to keep believing the gospel. And Paul is talking about multiple receptions of the gospel here. He's talking about rehearsing the gospel over and over and over again. So to state verse 1 positively, Paul is saying, we appeal to you to keep receiving the gospel, to keep receiving God's grace. As Murray Harris says in his commentary, the assumption is that God's grace is a stream that is constantly flowing and so always available for refreshment. Isn't that wonderful? It's a refreshing stream that is always available, that's always calling out to us, just come, just come and drink once again. I know you blew it last week. Just come and drink again. God's grace is a refreshing stream that is always available for weak, weary, exhausted, and worn out sinners. And we need to keep receiving its refreshment. Is that you today? Listen, we want to be a church that invites weak, weary, worn out, exhausted sinners to this refreshing stream of God's grace. And so Paul wants the Corinthians to keep receiving God's grace. Paul's telling them, we are appealing to you to keep on receiving God's grace with the empty hands of faith. You need it every day, so keep receiving it every day. Keep being refreshed by it. And when Paul says that they should not receive God's grace in vain, he means to receive it without profit, to receive it without benefit. In other words, Paul does not want them to hear the good news, but not have it affect their heart. 
He doesn't want them to hear the gospel and just be like, eh, so what? Heard that before. Been there, done that. He doesn't want them to hear the free offer of grace, that Jesus paid it all, and still think, but I can be good enough. I can earn my way to God's heart. Listen, grace is a gift that is to be received with the very empty hands of faith. And then in verse 2, Paul gives them the reason why they should keep rehearsing and receiving gospel refreshment. Look at verse 2. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So to prove that they should keep on receiving the grace of God, Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah in verse 2. Now, a little bit of background on Isaiah's context so that we understand why Paul is quoting this particular verse after what he just said in chapter 5, verse 21 that we looked at last week. Remember, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why does Paul quote from Isaiah 49 after what he says in chapter 5, verse 21? Why does he quote from Isaiah 49 instead of Isaiah 53. That seems like it would be relevant. Paul just mentioned God making Jesus to be sin for us, so why doesn't Paul quote something from Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, after what he said in verse 21, instead of quoting from Isaiah 49? Here's why. Paul wants the Corinthians to know that God listened to the cries and prayers of Jesus during his incarnation, but especially while on the cross. And he answered him by raising him from the dead. Now, let me explain. Isaiah 49 is the second of what are called the suffering servant songs. They are prophecies about Jesus in the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah 49, the second servant song, Isaiah tells us that Jesus would come bringing salvation, that he would call prisoners out of darkness where they would find their joy and salvation in him. So Isaiah 49 is really this Old Testament kind of sneak peek at Easter weekend. So let me read a portion of it to you. This is God speaking to his son Jesus through the prophet Isaiah, and eventually Jesus would fulfill this prophecy. Isaiah 49, verses 8 through 10. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritage, saying to the prisoners, come out. And to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. So the prophet Isaiah predicted that God would answer Jesus' many prayers as he came to fulfill his mission. He predicted that God would listen to and help Jesus as he suffered in order to bring refreshment to weak, weak and weary and worn out and exhausted sinners. 
And so God, Isaiah is saying, answered Jesus in a favorable time. God helped him on the day of salvation. So I think Paul is saying here that God listened to Jesus on Good Friday as he called out to him from the cross, and God helped Jesus on the day of salvation, meaning resurrection morning. He saved him from death. The preacher of Hebrews talks about this in chapter 5. He offered many prayers and, and cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And now, because of all that happened that first Easter weekend, Paul applies that to the Corinthians and tells them that now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Because God listened to the prayers of Jesus and helped him rise from the grave on that day, on Easter morning, now salvation is offered to all. Now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of refreshment. The new day has come. The everydayness of Easter has now arrived in Jesus. And that's why Paul tells the Corinthians in verse 2, Look, behold, get a load of this, y'all. Now, today is the favorable time. Look, behold, get a load of this, y'all. Now, today is the day of salvation. So it's a new day. The old is gone, Paul is saying. Working to earn our way to God by being good enough, by obeying the Mosaic law, all of that is gone. The new covenant is in effect. So, in other words, Paul is saying, it's Easter every day, if you will. Every day, God's favor is available for any sinner who wants it. In fact, the Greek word that Paul uses for favorable uh, is this compound word which means acceptable. It conveys the idea of welcome. We are welcomed home by God now because of Jesus. The idea of welcome is a nuance that most translations have lost. But the Living Bible, which is just a paraphrase, the Living Bible captures 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2 this way. Listen. As God's partners... We beg you not to toss aside this marvelous message of God's great kindness. For God says, your cry came to me at a favorable time when the doors of welcome were wide open. I helped you on a day when salvation was being offered. Right now, God is ready to welcome you. Today, he is ready to save you. So Paul's talking about the welcoming heart of God here. Because of all that happened that first Easter weekend, God welcomes sinners. In other words, think of it this way. God put a doormat outside his front door. That's what it means that now is the favorable time. Now is the welcoming time. God put a doormat outside his front door, if you will. And it says this, welcome. Come on in, y'all. Make yourself at home. Now is the welcoming time. Today is the day to be welcomed home by God. Have you? Have you come to Jesus yet? Today is the day. Turn from living for you. Repent, which means change your mind. Turn, confess your sin, and look to Christ and be saved don't toss aside this marvelous message of God's great kindness. 
The gospel is this welcome announcement. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21 that we saw last week. Substitutionary atonement. The bloody, gory death of Jesus was God saying to us, you're welcome here. Come. It's an announcement to us that in spite of what we fear or dread, God's heart toward us really is warm and caring and welcoming. And if you could sit down with Jesus on the front porch in a couple of rocking chairs and have a cup of coffee, he'd serve it to you in a cup that has these words on the side that read, grace is a hug to be experienced. Grace is God welcoming you even though you don't deserve it. Grace is God hugging you in Christ. The cross is God hugging you, squeezing you tight and telling you that you are welcome home, that he offers mercy and grace to sinners like us. Now, based on how we've all been this past week, you would expect God to offer lightning bolts, wouldn't you? Hey, come here, right? You would expect him to offer a sword and strike us down. Hey, come here, guy. You would expect him to obliterate us with his white, hot holiness and glory. But instead, what does he do? He offers mercy and grace. Imagine that. He offers mercy and grace after what you did yesterday. And so grace is a hug. Grace is God's sovereign commitment and rugged determination to bless the undeserving, but to do it with delight and joy. It's his sovereign commitment and his rugged determination. I'm going to do this to bless the undeserving, but to do it with delight and joy. In other words, it thrills God's heart to show favor and extend grace to the undeserving, to forgive us, to cleanse us, to refresh us, to renew us. Listen, God really, 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 really is slow to anger. He's not touchy and explosive like we are. He's not trigger happy, nor is he itching to bring the hammer down on, down on us. We actually have to drive him to that. Instead, his spontaneous heart, his knee-jerk reaction is to love us and to be gracious to us. Listen, I'm sorry if the church or some pastor has ever painted this picture of God for you where he is always frowning. Is that your image of God that he's up there like this? You know, always upset, always touchy, always explosive. That's not the picture of the heart of God. Maybe you picture God as this uptight, cranky dad who's always angry because his kids are so messy and bicker all the time. Listen, if you grew up thinking that God was this ogre, some meanie, some frowning, arms crossed, cranky father, I'm sorry, whoever told you that totally misrepresented God. Now, of course, God is angry at sin. He will judge one sinners one day. We know that. But he's not angry with his kids anymore. Let me say that again. He's not angry with his kids anymore. 
How many people think of God the way the great reformer Martin Luther did? All that Luther ever heard was that God was angry. Every sermon he heard, every book he read, every blog post, every tweet, every song, every email, every status update that he read was this. God is angry. He's fuming. If he made macaroni and cheese, then look, how long do I have to boil the macaroni for? At the bottom it would say, God is angry. It was just everywhere. He's fuming. His blood is boiling because we keep sinning. All he heard was, God is sick and tired of us because we can't seem to get our act together. That's all that Martin Luther ever heard. In fact, there was this one stone carving that Luther would pass as he entered the church. I've shown you this picture before. Luther, Martin Luther would run past this stone carving and close his eyes. He couldn't dare stand to look at it. It terrorized him. This stone relief pictures Jesus sitting on a rainbow with a sword coming out of his left side of his mouth and a flower coming out the right side and the veins on Jesus' forehead are so pronounced. You see his veins just bulging and popping off his forehead. His blood is boiling. He's angry with everyone. So you better watch your step, buddy boy, because Jesus is in a bad mood. This is what Luther saw as he came into church to worship Jesus. Luther thought, Jesus is like this. He only saw him as a judge, only as a judge, the righteous judge who was coming to judge sinners and punish them. Here's what Oswald Bayer says about Luther's experience. On a stone relief above the entrance to the cemetery surrounding the church, Luther saw Christ seated on the rainbow as judge of the world, so angry the veins stand out, menacing and swollen on his, swollen on his forehead. A lily emerging from the right side of his mouth and a sword from the left symbolize Christ judging both the spiritual and the worldly realms, thus judging everywhere. Nobody and nothing escapes his judgment. Now, can you imagine having this view of God? Maybe you have this view of God right now. Maybe this is how you view Jesus. Maybe you're like Martin Luther. Now, of course, we know Jesus is coming to judge the world one day. The Bible makes that very clear. We talked about that last week. There is a hell to fear for those who do not repent and turn to and trust in Christ. There is no hope for eternity. But God has opened the door to heaven and he's welcoming sinners into his home. All are welcome. He's calling sinners to repentance. And what draws sinners to repentance? Not that image of Jesus that Luther saw. Is it an angry Jesus, so angry that veins stand out on his forehead, menacing and swollen? No. As Paul says in Romans 2, 4, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Listen, Christian, those of you who are united to Christ by faith, if you view God as angry and cranky and always upset with you, then you will not enjoy Him. And He wants you to enjoy Him. If you view God as cranky and angry and always upset with you, then you won't enjoy Him, and He wants you to enjoy Him. It's why He made you. It's what you're going to do for eternity is enjoy God. It would be nice to get there and be like, oh yeah, we used to do this on the earth, old earth. (laughs) Enjoy God. 
That's what we're going to do for eternity? Great. I love doing it back home then. He wants you to enjoy him. We as a church want you to enjoy him. It's why our mission statement is this, that we exist to ignite a passion in every person to what? To glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. We're talking about enjoying Jesus everywhere you go. That's what we're about as a church. Let me ask you this morning. Are you confident this morning that God is favorable to you? Do you believe that he is gracious and wants to bless you? Is that how you see God? Do you see him as a God who wants to bless you? Or do you have this kind of cranky God image? I think many Christians have that view of God. They think they have to do things for him and then he will love them and give them grace and bless them. If they jump through enough hoops, read their Bible enough, pray enough, maybe, he's kind of a miser, maybe he'll bless you a little bit. They think that all God wants is for people to do things for him, to just check off the list, do a little bit more, try just a little bit harder. Is that your view of God? Do you think that he is primarily interested in what you do or don't do for him? If you think your relationship with God is contingent upon your behavior, you don't understand grace. Let me say it again. If you think your relationship with God is contingent upon your behavior, you don't understand grace. And if you view God first and foremost as a lawgiver, then that's how you'll relate to him. If you think first, man, God's given me all these laws, i got to obey them all, check them all off, that's how he relates to me, then that's how you'll relate to him. He's just a lawgiver, always demanding, and I'm always messing up, so what hope is there for either one of us? You'll always be trying to keep the rules to please him in order to earn his favor. You'll always be trying hard to make sure you stay in line Instead of just enjoying him, enjoying his grace, which is what he wants you to do. Listen, God wants you to enjoy him. If you get nothing else out of the sermon this morning, get that. God wants you today, right now, to enjoy him. Listen, you should wake up every day and tell yourself, God wants me to enjoy him today. God wants me to enjoy him today. As you're brushing your teeth, God wants me to enjoy him today. As you're taking a shower, God wants me to enjoy him today. That will change everything about your day. He loves us. He welcomes us into his presence. He says to sinners, Mikasa es su casa. In the gospel, Jesus comes to you and he says, here's a key to my house. Here's a key to the front door. You're welcome anytime. Make yourself at home. And so what Paul is doing here is he's just telling the Corinthians that grace is a hug to be experienced. He's telling them that God wants you to believe and to feel his love. Paul wants them to experience a hug from God, and he doesn't want to get in the way. Paul doesn't want to give the Corinthians a to-do list or have them jump through any hoops in order to experience God's grace. He doesn't want to hinder anyone from coming to Christ. No roadblocks, no speed bumps, no detours, no hindrances whatsoever. Look at verse 3. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. 
If now is the favorable time, the time when God welcomes sinners home, then Paul says that he's not going to hinder anyone from coming to Jesus. He's not going to put any obstacles in anyone's way. No obstacles like earning your way, being good enough, circumcision, obeying the Mosaic law. He doesn't want there to be any ifs, ands, or buts with his gospel. No, you can't dress like that. You can't listen to that kind of music. Paul doesn't want there to be any roadblocks for any weary, exhausted sinner coming home to Jesus. No list of rules. And we're good with these lists of rules, aren't we? Churches are great at cranking out a list of rules, aren't they? There's no, you have to dress like this. You can't do that. You can only read this version of the Bible because it's the really inspired one. You You have to do blank. None of that. No hoops to jump through. No to-do list. Just come messy, dirty, damaged, broken. But how easy it is for churches and pastors to lay heavy burdens on people or to preach the beautiful, wonderful, magnificent grace of God but make it difficult for people to enjoy it. So we end up sending messages like this to people and the church is notorious for saying things like this. You're forgiven, But you better not have any fun. No laughing, no smiling, no dancing. All you can eat is liver and you can drink prune juice. And if you want dessert, you can go suck on a lemon. And whatever you do, you better not enjoy God. That's putting stumbling blocks in people's way home to God. And reformed people are notorious for doing stuff like this. Here's what Jack Miller said about his own reformed tradition. We have created this wonderful castle of grace, but someone forgot to put in a door to the castle, the welcoming heart of God. Reformed people, those who love the doctrines of grace, those who love the five solas, those who love tulip, those who claim to be Calvinists, and that's us. We are notorious for having big brains, and cold hearts. We understand the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God, total depravity, God's sovereign election in eternity past, and we of all people should be the most warm, gentle Christians around, and yet sometimes we are rightly called the frozen chosen. We should be the most free, the most fun, those who laugh the most. I said, I meet with a couple of guys every week here at Grace. I'm willing to bet in our Bible study, 50% of it is laughter. We just laugh all the time. We laugh as we study the Bible. I enjoy it. Steve Brown said this about the Reformed tribe. The frozen chosen, and I think he spotted. And he said, Calvinists don't do whimsy. We're too serious for that. We believe the doctrines and would die for them, but we don't laugh much. Our faith is far too serious for that. For instance, we teach, believe, and articulate universal radical depravity. But if we find any, we kick you out. We believe in sola scriptura, but we spend a great deal of time explaining why the Bible doesn't mean what it says. We believe in the doctrines of grace, but if you get out of line, God will break your legs and give you cancer. And of course, it will happen because he loves you. 
We get theology, apologetics, and exegesis, but we don't get whimsy and often forget to laugh. Grace isn't a doctrine to be defended. It's a hug that needs to be experienced. Frankly, if we got that, we would lighten up and laugh more. It's so weird, isn't it? The Reformed world believes all of these robust, biblical, soul-strengthening, hope-infusing doctrines. But we don't laugh. We don't dance. We're uptight. We're not relaxed. We're afraid to have fun. Listen, we should be the most free, lighthearted, enjoyable people to be around, but that's not often the case for those who love the doctrines of grace. And so we build this giant, wonderful castle of grace with all of these ornate rooms with breathtaking views of God's word and his eternal decrees. And we have rooms in our castle that are called providence and propitiation and election and regeneration and justification. And we have libraries and libraries in our castles, in the castle of grace with books by John Calvin and R.C. Sproul and Martin Luther and Jonathan Edwards and John Piper and Sinclair Ferguson and John Owen, to name a few. But we're so uptight and worried that someone is going to act up or get out of line or do something silly. We have created this wonderful castle of grace but we forgot to put a door into the castle, the welcoming heart of God who wants us to come in and to do what? To enjoy him. That's the door into biblical Christianity, the welcoming heart of God. That's how you get into Grace Castle. And what are you greeted with when you enter? A hug. That's how they do it in Grace Castle. A hug. You come in and you get a hug. Because grace is a hug to be experienced. Have you experienced it? You can today. Even you, Christian, you can get repeated hugs by Jesus. Let him hug on you today. He knows what you did last week. He knows. And you know. And he's willing to hug you. He knows how you fought with your spouse getting ready for church today. Anybody? <laughs> He knows how you yelled at your kids this morning. He knows all the bad stuff you regularly do, and he still wants to hug you. And it makes him happy to do so. It thrills his heart to be gracious. And it thrills his heart when you laugh. And so as one of God's messengers, his ambassadors working together with him, he told me to tell you today, don't toss aside this marvelous message of God's great kindness. Right now, God is ready to welcome you. Today, he's ready to save you, to hug you. Let's pray. Father, who you are just goes against everything in our nature. We believe in karma. We believe in you get what you deserve. We believe in you reap what you sow. And grace comes along and kicks all that out the door. Now, of course, we know there are consequences to our sin. Yes, Lord, we do reap what we sow. But how often we've dragged all of that baggage into our relationship with you. And we think if we can just finally be good enough, you'll love us and accept us. 
And I'm so glad you gave us your word, which reveals how your heart goes pitter-patter for us. We don't deserve it at all. We've been bad. We admit that. And yet you still love us. And so it's your kindness to us, Lord, that right now wants to make us repent. To repent of these images of you, of having a, a, a menacing, swollen frown on your face. We repent of that. We repent of the many sins that we think, say, and do, and all the motives that are driving everything we think, say, and do. And we just confess that, Lord, and say, would you forgive us? Lord, help us to be free. Christ has set us free. Help us to stand and not come again under a yoke of slavery. Help us to laugh this week. Help us to dance and to relax. And then help us to go tell people about how good and kind you are, Lord. We ask all this for your glory, Father, for your kingdom to expand into this world, Lord. And we ask it for our joy. We ask it for our laughter. In Jesus' name, amen.